0: So last week we covered, in being an ambassador for Christ, what it means to be compelled by the love of Christ. And when you take a look at Christianity, love is central to what it means to be a Christian. But this word love, what does that mean? I mean, it's a short little word, isn't it? It's often vaguely, very vaguely defined. For example, when I was growing up and uh, in junior high, I got a little poster bulletin board and it had two little cupids on it and it said, love is like, wow. Anybody remember seeing any of those? Something like that. Love is like, wow. And that was my definition, so to speak, my knowledge of what love is. And I look back at that and I cringe and think that's the depth of knowledge I had or the culture I had regarding love. Love is like, wow. But I also cringe when I take a look at our current culture and how it defines love. So, for example, you will often see, love is love. Have you heard that one? It's often in the culture, love is love, and it is often the rallying cry when it comes to marriage, whatever marriage might be. It could be same-sex marriage. Love is love, doesn't really matter, right? It could be more than just same-sex marriage. It could be polygamy, which is one man and many women, because love is love, right? Or it could be polyandry, which is one woman and many men, because love is love, right? I mean, when love is just love, it could be anything you want, because it's how you feel. As a matter of fact, there's a website that says you could marry your pet. Are you familiar with that? Have you ever heard that one? Yeah. Let's see if I get the quote. Um, the, the tagline on the website is, marriage is for life if your pet is your wife. I mean, it becomes ludicrous, doesn't it? And it has become this whole rallying cry of love is love has become so ludicrous that now I've seen at least one or two cases where a woman wanted just to simply marry herself. So that's what it has become. This rallying cry, love is love, is nonsensical, Because it is a circular definition. It doesn't define anything, it just says the same thing twice. The irony is that this rallying cry of love is love is not liberating at all. In fact, it has become self destructive because at its core is self idolatry. The holding up of myself, my feelings, my thoughts as the standard of what is right and true and proper. So this is destructive. It is also a far cry from the biblical definition, the biblical idea of love. So this morning, we're going to take a look at a commandment that we are to love one another. It's from the Gospel of John. Here's what you should know about John. John was called the love disciple. In his gospel, in his writings, especially his letters, he wrote about love again and again and again. He said that God is a God of love, that God loved his son, that God loved Christ's disciples, that God loved the world, that God is loved by Christ, that Christ loved the disciples in general, and Christ loved them as specific individuals, that Christ expected men to love him, that Christ taught that we should love one another, and that love is fulfilling of the whole Old Testament law. And in his letters, that's just the gospel. So if you read just the gospel and you miss that it is about love, you've missed one of the main themes in the gospel. At the same time, when you take a look at his letters, you also see a very clear statement, God is love. As a matter of fact, you should know that John The Apostle John went on so much about his love in his older age, there's at least an account that his students, his disciples said, could you just lay off the love stuff for a while? You know, it became so much. But, and this is crucial, what John wrote about love and how he taught about love is a far, far cry from today's current culture regarding love. You see for John there were two words that went together when he wrote truth and love. He never for he never took away one for the other. They are always together, truth and love. Because also when you take a look at John's writing in the gospel, he has truth statement after truth statement after truth statement. And these truth statements were divisive. I'm going to give you one of the most divisive truth statements that that's probably written about Christianity, that the world mocks, that the world rejects. And John writes Jesus saying this, I am the way and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The world hates that statement. And yet, that's the truth. And when you read it in context, you see it was such a loving statement that Jesus was giving to His disciples before He went to be crucified. So, Love and truth. You see, Christianity is always guided by truth and love. Never separate the two. If you separate the two, you have false love. If you separate the truth from love, you have false love. You're building it on a lie. But if you separate love from truth, oh, your doctrine might be right. But then you become a Pharisee. There always is love and truth. And here's what John knew. John knew this, the foundation of true love is found in Jesus. The foundation of true love is found in Jesus. Period. So this morning, when we take a look at the gospel, we are going to see that love comes from God's glory. From his glory, we are loved. And then we are to therefore love just as Jesus loved us. So let us go to the text. John chapter 13, starting with verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said that now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Now, let's just make sure we have the context for this particular passage. It was Passover night. The disciples, it was the night on which Jesus was to be betrayed. They had just finished the Passover meal. They're in the... uh, Actually, let me back up, get the right proper order. They were in the upper room They were about to have the Passover meal. Jesus had washed their feet. Then they do have the Passover meal. And then Judas, the inner circle, one who had been closely associated with Jesus, one who had been a friend, that night he was to betray Jesus. Do you remember how he betrayed him? With a kiss. Now, Jesus, knowing everything that was to happen, actually urges his Judas on. He says, if you're going to do it, do it quickly. And then he didn't talk about the sorrow. He didn't talk about any of that because he knew this was the fullness of the plan. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were working in one. This was the plan. And so rather than talk about sorrow, rather than talk about just betrayal, rather than talking about how he was feeling at the moment, Jesus talks about the glory of God. This should actually surprise you a little bit. He talks about the glory of God. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself and glorify him at once. A lot of glory in that statement, isn't there? He repeats it. So when we talk about glory or the glory of God, what do we mean by that? We talk about the splendor, the majesty of God. But it's really hard for us to wrap our arms around the glory of God. What's happening here? So Scripture does a couple things. Scripture records praise to His glorious name. It describes Him as the glorious Father. He is exalted above the heavens, and His glory is over all the earth. He is the God of glory that appeared to the patriarchs. The glory of God is proclaimed by his creation. It is revealed by his mighty acts of salvation and deliverance. His glory is the theme and praise of men. This is just a little bit about how Scripture talks about the glory of God. See, God didn't save us because we're so good. God saved us because he is so glorious. For his glory. And then, how is Jesus glorified in all of this? So, the glory that Jesus received is because of his obedience to the Father and his love for the Father. Think of the ministry that Jesus had. Every single word every single deed, every single thought, every single action was all focused on glorifying God, of carrying through the plan of salvation to the very end. So everything he did was because he loved the Father, and he obeyed the Father, and he carried out the Father's command, and thus the Father is glorified, and Jesus is glorified as well. And it is not just an earthly glorification that we're talking about. It's not just like a, hey, Jesus, good job, well done. It's much more than that. It is a glory of eternal significance. If you go to John chapter 17, starting with verse 1, this is part of the high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And since you have given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me before to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Now, you might say, hold on, I thought we were going to talk about the commandment, love one another. What has all this talk about God's glory to do with this commandment of love one another? Because the commandment comes in a particular context. You can't just pluck it out of the air and then say, well, that's it, apart from anything else. See, Jesus is giving a whole preface to this commandment. And the, com- the preface to the commandment starts with the glory of God. So the question I have for you, what would it be like if when we talk about love, we first talk about the glory of God? I just wonder how that would shape any dating experience anybody has, right? (laughs) You chuckle at that, right? Because mostly we have, well, love is love. And I I kind of, I feel that way. But I also want to point this out. What would it be like in marriages? Not only when things are good, but when things are bad. When you start and take a moment and say, you know what, let's talk about the glory of God first and how He loved us from His glory. Do you understand that puts a whole different perspective. So now, after speaking about the glory of God, Jesus brings the attention back to the disciples because from His glory we are loved. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as I have said to the Jews. Now I say to you also where I am going, you cannot come. I imagine the disciples... Probably like you and I are kind of bewildered by all this talk of glory. But um, as they couldn't really comprehend it, Jesus goes on. He says in a very most endearing manner, he calls them little children. I have to tell you, nowhere in the gospel, nowhere in the gospel is the term little children used for the adults, certainly not for the apostles. This is the one moment that it's being used. Now, we find it in John's letters later on. But in short, here's what this little phrase doing. and it should bring you great comfort. It brings the glory of God, the majesty of God, the splendor of God, the eternal righteousness, truth, love, and justice of God all the way down to you. Jesus says, little children. He, in essence, is calling them his own. You could say that we are his family, and he cares for us in the fullness of God's glory. We are his family, and he cares for us in the goodness, in the fullness of God's glory. We have been bought with a price. We are his. So this is very endearing. It's not a statement of judgment to the Pharisees beforehand. He gave this statement of judgment to the Pharisees. He said the same thing to the Jews, the other Pharisees who did not believe him, who rejected him. He said, where I'm going, you can't come. You can't even find me. He said that as a moment of judgment upon them. But to the disciples in this context, on the night in which he was to be betrayed, it provides a different meaning. It means that they could not do what he was about to do. They could not go to the cross. Remember, all to a one they said, I would die for you. But they didn't understand that they could not take his place. They could not go to the cross and die for the sin of the world. Thus he tenderly tells them, where I am going, you cannot come. It's like when a mother hen spreads her wings over the chicks and protects them. And Jesus protects them from the wrath that is about to be poured out on him alone. Little children from God's glory to us, the children of the family. And then with all of that, now he says this commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, at first glance, this does not seem to be a new commandment. As a matter of fact, from our reading today, Leviticus 19, it says, "You shall not hate your brother in your heart, you shall not reason frank, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord." And didn't Jesus also say this in Matthew 22, starting with verse 37? He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with your mind. This is the first and great, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus again is summing up all of the old Testament law and prophets with that love the Lord, your God, love your neighbor as yourself. So how is this a new commandment? Well, first of all, we have to understand how people have taken that quote from Matthew chapter 22 and changed it to their own ends. Because again, people will take that one verse or a couple of verses here, and they will equate then to Christianity being nice, to simply helping out one another. And that's what it means to love God and love your neighbor. But they also haven't then studied the full counsel of God regarding this matter. You must understand that Jesus is summing up the old Testament, Law, and Prophets. He's summing up the Old Testament. By the way, most people have never read the Old Testament. Most Christians have barely read the New Testament, let alone the Old Testament. But you know what? If they really did read the Old Testament and studied it, it would change their lives. Those Ten Commandments? You know, I don't want to give anybody a quiz right now, but how many could you actually name? Right? Well, I know there's ten. Let's see. But if you actually studied them, you would see the depth of God's love and what it means to love God and love your neighbor in a way that you will have never noticed before. That's why I'm actually excited next week to start Luther's small catechism. Because there is a depth there that would actually, if we followed it as a society, would fundamentally change who we are as a society. But you see, in this rallying cry of love is love, we have made ourselves the standard of what love is. Means. But listen again to what Jesus said. He said, Love one another just as I have loved you. He says to his disciples, Listen, this is a new commandment, it's not the Old Testament law and prophets. It's a new commandment that I am giving to you. And the standard of love is Jesus. He says, I am the standard and measure of love by which everything else is to be measured. You see, when Christians just say, well, love God, love your neighbor. And I hear that, and I hear it more and more and more. um, I'm starting to get pretty sad about it. Because they missed entirely what Jesus said. He's the standard by which all love is to be measured. See, when Jesus said, love one another just as I have loved you, this is a radical departure from all other teachings of religions or belief. There's no sense that love is love. There's no sense that there's a golden rule there either. Did you notice that? There's even no sense that there's the golden rule there. You don't measure the strength of love by your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts. You don't measure it on scientific studies or psychology. He said, there's only one measure of love. I'm it. Jesus is the measure of love. And he said, love one another just. Just as I have loved you. How did he love us? If you turn, if you got your Bible I would encourage you to go to 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. 1 John 4 chapter 10. In this is love that we not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation Propitiation means to appease the wrath of someone. In this case, it means to appease the wrath of God. We should all know this word. We should be comfortable with this word. It is an important word. Propitiation, to bear the wrath of another or to bear or appease the wrath of God. And John wrote... In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, I know many of you would rather bear persecution than send your loved one to be persecuted. Right? If you had a choice, you would probably say, I will go so you don't have to bear it. But what did the father do? The father sent his son, the one whom he loved, to be whipped, to be scorned, to be mocked. And listen to this, all for the sake of the ones who whipped him and scorned him and mocked him. Who of you would be willing to send your loved one, the one you love the most, to bear such a thing? I I couldn't do that. I would rather bear that than send my wife, my daughter, my family, my friends. I'd say I'd bear it. You have to understand this is how much God loves us. He sent his son to bear what no one else could bear. And John wrote, In this is love. This type of love, real love, love comes from Christ, is a sacrificial love. It is a love that puts aside all self-interest on the behalf of others, a love that endures hardship and pain, a love that endures and has such great compassion for others that everything else is secondary, a love that says, I will die for you. My ego will die. My pride will die. My selfish ambitions will die all for the sake of another. You see, you and I already know at a fundamental level, this is love. And that's the love that Jesus said we are to have for one another. And when you have that type of love for one another, then the world will know you're my disciples. You want to know why the world doesn't know we're his disciples? Because we don't have that type of love. We don't. It's a radical love. And we need to live in such a radical way. And it's different, so different from how the world declares love. So here's a question for you. Would you be willing to turn... To anybody sitting next to you today and say in all sincerity, I love you, I'd be willing to lay down my life for you. Now I know it's easier, especially if you're sitting with family members, right? But if you turn to somebody who's not your family, would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to do that today before you leave church? And if not, why not? See, Jesus said we are to love one another just as he loved him. And this is all from God's glory. Amen.